0: This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring, hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me, it's me, it's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hope you're having a good one as you're listening to the podcast. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Waste a little time and get into the three count. One of the biggest stories over the last seven days has been without a doubt what's going on with one. Daniel Bryan, the big news story of the week, or the last week I should say, is according to Fightful Select, they were the first one to kind of break this story, saying that multiple sources in and outside of WWE have indicated Daniel Bryan's contract either expired last week or was set to expire last week following the loss to Roman Reigns on Friday Night SmackDown. This was actually two weeks ago. And high-level sources noted that they had heard of the contract expiring, but that Bryan had not openly spoken about his contract status, at least that they were aware of. So that was absolutely one of the biggest stories of the week, bar none. And this is something that is still kind of it's bubbling to the surface. I, but it's all about, you know, obviously... He's still going to be in contact with WWE to get a new contract going and be more of a part-timer. Everybody immediately wants to go, hey, you know, it's time for him to go to, you know, AEW or Ring of Honor or New Japan. And I think at this point, if WWE is not going to allow him to wrestle on a part-time basis, then I think the conversation is going to have to be: hey, let's go ahead and move on and try and achieve some lifelong dreams. Like, let's say, who's to say. That Daniel Bryan's dream isn't to have that. Like, Ada, like Cody Rhodes, whenever he left WWE, had a checklist of things he wanted to mark off. And he's done a lot of things in his career. He's made a in WrestleMania. So like, at this point, outside of winning the Royal Rumble, there's nothing left for him to do in the WWE. That he hasn't already completed. He's won money in the bank. He cashed in, has won the World Heavyweight Championship, has won the WWE Championship multiple times. Has won damn near every other title they have outside of the 24-7 championship. And the Intercontinental. No, he won the Intercontinental. i keep forgetting he won it for a moment in 2015. Prior to his first retirement. But the question is going to stand, you know, where would he land if Daniel Bryan didn't go back to the WWE? And I think he's going to be more of a freelancer. He's going to keep a very limited schedule and until after the pandemic's over, obviously. I think that's the first thing. Second thing is I think he'd be more of a guy that's just going to go ahead and do a handful of matches because he knows his career is starting to wind down. He knows that he'd be able to get a lot more money by probably being more of a part-timer and make those appearances mean that much more and set up a contract to where he does limited appearances in Ring of Honor, New Japan, AEW. Where he doesn't tie himself down to any one promotion, but goes on kind of that one last like big tour of the world. Go ahead and wrestle in the biggest British promotions that are still existing that aren't in the WWE kind of catch-all term. You know, you can have that kind of thing go on. Biggest you can have a CM a Triple Triple Who's to say he doesn't appear there for a match? Ring of Honor, New Japan hell i mean there's a lot of other promotions that he can get to but i think that's what he's gonna try and figure out his plan going forward and that's what it is for me i think it's without a doubt daniel bryan as of right now no longer with wwe could he go back i'm almost certain he could because at the end of the day that's not only money in their pocket because he's on fox but also it's money in his pocket money in their pocket and in his pocket with Total Bellas and without Daniel Bryan, I'm sure Total Bellas may not necessarily exist, especially if he goes to AEW. Then that conversation shifts of, oh, hey, how are we going to do Total Bellas without one of the Bellas? Because they're like Breeze attached with Daniel Bryan, and he can't necessarily write one of them out of the show and just becomes, you know, the Nikki Bella show. No Nobody wants to watch that, to be honest with you. I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen here. I hope we see Daniel Bryan back in WWE. But he'd fit well in AEW. He'd fit extremely well in Ring of Honor. And who's to say you could have a moment where Daniel Bryan and Samoa Joe put on one match there, and you know he kind of moves on, does his own thing. Because I don't want to, I don't want to see Daniel Bryan tied down, because there's so much going on outside of that bubble. And I think everybody has that bubble. It's a lot like certain fan bases here in the state of Louisiana. Either you're a diehard Cajuns fan. And anybody else can just get out of get out of our bubble. And there's those diehard vocal LSU fans. Then there are the ones that like both, and heck, even dig a little bit here and there. Like like me, for instance, I like LSU and UL both about the same. Probably a little more Cajuns than LSU. Then we get to McNeese. So I'm like, I'm gonna dig into that a little bit. Nickel State. Just in terms of the uh, football landscape, I'm going to go ahead and enjoy that too because guess what? If they're all doing good, if if all the towns and all the promoters are doing good, pro wrestling is in a great state right now. So at the end of the day, it's shocking Daniel Bryan's contract expired, especially kind of out of nowhere because everybody thought this thing was going to expire back in, in September of 2021, but no, this came out of nowhere and shocked a lot of people. So again, I'm giving credit to Fightful Select for dropping this news last week. I think this was on a Tuesday night or no, I think it was Monday after I got done taping the podcast. I think that was where the news kind of broke. But one of the other big news stories of the week, at least to me, was FMW. It is officially back. Some a word I never thought I'd say in my entire life. FMW is back and I cannot wait. You heard me right. Japanese deathmatch legend. Atsushi Onita announced the launch of his new promotion, FMWE. It's a reboot of FMW, the promotion that you saw a lot of exploding barbed wire matches and just the most hardcore stuff you'd ever imagine. It came to close in 2002, but it's under a new name, FMWE. And the E doesn't stand for everyone, like your video games. No, it stands for explosions. And the promotion. Will specialize in exploding matches. It's coming after kind of that whole, you know, match slash mess that was revolution and the underwhelming explosions. He wants to prove it wrong, and this is really cool. So, again, it's an incredible run FMW had back in the day. Ended in 2002, and there was also a revival attempted. Several tragedies occurred, and that vision was pushed off the face of the earth. FMW, obviously, most known for pioneering those explosion-style death matches, and something we saw back in February. But Onita's saying, you know, let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and bring this thing back, and I cannot wait for this. I'm definitely going to be all in on it. And the first event is going to be conveniently on the 4th of July at Yokohama, hopefully I'm pronouncing this one right, Tsurumi Fruit Market. It's going to stream worldwide for a 1,000 yen, which is going to be about $9 U.S. But trust me, there's going to be somebody out there that is going to pirate it, and I may very well try and find that feat because I am all the way here to see a FMW-E. If it's complete and utter explosion matches galore, it's going to be kick-ass, and I, we need to see it at least like once or twice a year. It doesn't need to be like a monthly thing every two or three months because I think if you do it every month, it's going to wind up being you know overdone. It's going to feel not, not necessarily as great. Hell, do it every quarter. I think I'd be more than happy with it. But the fact we're getting it on 4th of July, that is really cool. And in the final bit of three-count news, we're going to go to AEW. We'll talk about AEW Dynamite blood and guts in a little bit, mainly just the match itself because that was the one and only thing I was interested in. But AEW dropped a bombshell on Monday. And I was kind of glad. I had jury duty. So I was not able to be here and host the show. But now... AW is back on the road July seventh. I saw some reports. Hikaru Shida apparently leaked out on a stream. They were coming back on like July nineteenth or something along those lines. Looks like she she fudged the numbers just a little bit. But AW just officially announced they are back to doing live shows starting July seventh, right after Fourth of July weekend, and they'll be starting off in the three hundred five Miami. At James L. Knight Center on July the fourth. Then they'll make their way over to the great state of Texas. On July 14th, they'll be at the Heb Center in the Greater Austin area in Cedar Park, Texas. And then the Curtis Colwell Center in Garland, Texas is on July twenty first. And they have a lot of other shows as well they're they're planning on having. I'll get to kind of a rundown of what shows at least interest me. But what is intriguing, though, is there's one show that was scheduled for November 5th of 2021. That is a Friday night. Presumably, that if I'm not mistaken, I think that's going to be the day before LSU Alabama. But it is a TV taping in St. Louis on November 5th. The show was supposed to be on June 23rd. It'll now be a television taping. Now, does that mean it's going to be AEW Dynamite? Or is this going to be AEW's second show? Is this going to be the first instance of of AEW's new show. Obviously, we're going to try to figure out more about how these live events are going to go. And in fact, they say in the near future, AEW will be announcing additional live events for the late summer because, of course, they have only the next three shows in July. Pretty much taking up all of July outside of the 28th. But they're going to potentially announce more down the road. And I'm pulling up kind of how things look on AEW's website. And they've got a gap between the 21st and the 18th when the next show is scheduled to be at the Fertina Center, which is going to be I believe, University of Houston's arena on August the 18th. They'll make their way to Milwaukee on the 25th. Boston's going to have a show in September. And we start to get things a little bit more back to schedule. Rochester, New York, New York which is supposed to be the original site of blood and guts, is going to be September 29th. Hopefully everything continues to fall in line, and we get to hear more and more announcements about future shows, and good news for those here in the crest in the boot, I should say, almost said the Crescent City, because it is in the Crescent City. But for people in Louisiana that want to see AEW, more importantly, want to see live wrestling from one of the big promotions, because let's be honest, WWE is not coming back to the cage dome. I don't think ever again after the way fans sat on their hands. It was the most boring Raw of all time. In 2019, that fan base was not hot, and that's how you're going to want to continuing to have shows. And I'm sure the WWE took note of that, and they're not in their plans. Out of fact, the WWE is probably not going to be doing house shows anymore. But the Uno Lakefront Arena in New Orleans is going to have a show in 2022, Wednesday Night Dynamite, January 12th. I am already marking that down on my calendar. It's, I believe, outside of a book. And I might be taking a little bit of vacation time to go to Dynamite. I'm definitely like 100% all the way here for more wrestling and more stuff like this. Because the fact that we're getting closer to having things back to some form of normalcy. Now, obviously, the amount of attendance that's not been announced yet. Because obviously, that's in January of 2022. Hopefully, by then, we are long past all this crap with COVID-19. Because honestly, wrestling needs fans. And I'm not saying, you know, they haven't had fans, they've had fans. They're gonna have double or nothing, 100 percent attendance. It's be all the way through. Florida's come on down. Come over. You look at, you know, eight, I mean, WrestleMania 37. That like if WrestleMania 37 was gonna be in a freaking performance center, Thunderdome, whatever, I was going to be like upset because it's not the same. Yes, they did a good job putting it together for WrestleMania 36. But here's the thing, that was a once, hopefully, only team. There's only one-time thing, but if you had, for the second consecutive year, WWE had a show, WrestleMania, in front of no fans and it was virtual fans, it would be the most depressing thing ever because you the, the energy wouldn't be there. The juice wouldn't be there. Like The second you saw the fireworks go off and the and the fans out there and the way they reacted, the second Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley came out, that was what was missing with pro wrestling over the last, let's say, a year and a month. And if AEW can continue to build and have more and more shows, and they're gearing up to travel the country yet again, I cannot wait. Daily's place is always going to be, you know, the home base. They're still going to do shows over there. I'm sure they have plans. Maybe they do some shows following. You know, I'm trying to think of the next all out they going to do a show not too long after all out back at daily's place i know they're probably going to do a new year's show every year daily's place because that's that's their home base that's their homeland and who's to say that the conversation doesn't shift into aew continuing to do more and more live events they just did their first house show now i know they did tape some of that stuff and they're probably going to use it for content down the road because we all know tony khan wants to wind up using a lot of content To take up a lot of time on his shows, but also for a potential network deal or better yet, a streaming deal. Because again, TNT, HBO Max, they have a working relationship together and I know BR Live that has a relationship with AEW. They could work something together to where AEW could wind up benefiting in a lot of different ways by having a network or network-esque thing in partnership with HBO Max. That's kind of where this all comes together. But the fact that we get AEW announcing a live show, and then not long after that, in fact, this afternoon, I saw this pop up on Twitter. It's coming from, I believe, Fight TV put out a, a, quoted, put, tweeted a link for Heal by Nature with that came from Dave Meltzer. And WWE's apparently reportedly considering MSG for SummerSlam, the first time they would have a pay-per-view, if that's the case, since... Survivor Series 2011, and the first televised event they've had at MSG since 2019. September 2019 was the last time they had a show that was televised on like cable. I'm not counting network shows because I think they've had a couple, like of their, I think maybe one of their holiday shows or something that they had a straight up that card that was broadcast on the network or would now be Peacock. I don't count that because it's not actually honest to God cable television at least just that's just my opinion when it comes right down to it but that was your three count on this episode 56 of the cajun strong style podcast welcome back to the cajun strong style podcast 103.7 the game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast appreciate you listening in and if you got a minute make sure you go ahead and hit that Subscribe button, follow button, whatever on whatever podcast gimmick that you wind up using because we've got us on every single platform out there. So make sure you hit the subscribe button today. But let's get to something else that happened over the course of this week in pro wrestling. And I want to talk about Dark Side of the Ring, Brian Pillman. It was a two-hour special. And boy, oh boy, I've got some takeaways from it. And one of the biggest things is screw Vince McMahon. It is something I think a lot of us can say. It is absolutely screw Vincent Kennedy McMahon for a lot of different reasons. But I think it was so damning just to hear some of the stuff that was said regarding the passing of Brian Pellman and the Pellman Tribute Show when Melanie was out there. And obviously the interview wasn't great. The optics weren't great in the first place. The fact you had somebody do an interview after, like a day after your husband died. And you don't quite know what the report, what death report was yet. You haven't got the autopsy or anything. So you don't know what it could have been. Wait till you get the facts out there before you even say anything. But the WWE and Vince McMahon decided we're going to go ahead and try and create some buzz. And again, Eric Bischoff has talked about it. I've heard it said a lot. No press is truly bad press. When you think about it. And if it's something that's going to wind up popping off the headlines, you're going to get in the trending world, if you will. It's a benefit. But this is when it goes completely awry. And they actually said this, and I was like so upset with all of it. And Melanie Pellman said that Vince McMahon talked to her before the interview and said, all right, so is there anything you're not comfortable talking about at this time? And it's like, and she's like, I'm willing to do the interview but you cannot talk about drugs being involved in this. It's obviously, you know, he was under pain medication a lot towards the end of his life after the car accident. So it makes sense why she didn't want to talk about it. Cause again, and also you don't have the reports, you don't have the autopsy report or anything else that can tell you, Oh, Hey, this played a role in his passing. And it was insane. And I sat there and I was like, okay. And then they asked the questions. Like, what kind of sick human being would do something like that live on air? Ask somebody 24 hours after their husband died, You don't even, like, she doesn't even know what's going on in terms of why he passed away. And you ask her this question, it's so scuffed. And the entire thing is just a bad look in the first place. Is Vincent man was going to interview this person in the first place. I was very, I, I, I couldn't even believe it when it was said. And something again, I was a wrestling fan a little bit after this, and right before Owen Hart passed away, so I don't remember seeing this live, but damn it, it is a gut punch. and can not imagine how much more cringy it was if you watched this live and we're understanding like this is so like out of wagon. it's something you shouldn't have ever done at least to me. so first off, that was something that just frustrated me to no end. That said, there was some other stuff. And I think Melanie Pillman doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because of that. Because they, they painted her a negative light, and it's justifiably so. I mean, I, from what I was reading, I Googled some things as well. That Pillman's wife, Melanie Pillman, I mean, they made her look like an absolute psychopath, the way that she treated Pillman's ex and, and the mother of his child basically having her, turning her into a crazy person, and then she, like, up and, like, shoots herself. Like, that was something I didn't know about. And that whole thing was completely insane. And I was like, this is what Dark Side of the Ring is about. It just absolutely crushes in a lot of different aspects. And this one hit, I like, it hit on a lot of different levels. And you hear about Melanie Pellman using the money, I think, from some of the tribute shows to buy drugs, which is all kinds of scuffed in and of itself and I sat there I was like this is so depressing but thankfully they managed to redeem themselves because again Dark Side of the Ring needs to have those moments where you get into the gritty stuff but it's like you need to like, in a moment like that have him turn his damn life around or but it, have the story have a happy ending rather than just be a downer and the high note is Brian Pillman Jr. Without a doubt, a guy that's probably going to be a top star, and it's not because of this. He absolutely has star power written all over him because he wrestles a lot like his dad, and his dad was a hell of a wrestler. He was a hell of a character, too. We can't forget that Brian Pillow Jr. may be one of the best characters in professional wrestling history because it was very much, you know, breaking the fourth wall and making you believe making you d- wonder, is this real or is this fake? What what's what's a work and what's not? Very much, you know, I'm going to say it. Brian Pillman Sr. was without a doubt the Deadpool of WWE. Or pro, of pro wrestling, period. Is he would break the fourth wall consistently. He would do these kind of things that would like unlock a lot of the hidden secrets of the business. Especially back in the 90s when the internet wasn't necessarily readily available in every American household like it is these days. You didn't have you know, smartphones that tell you everything. You don't have people having the ability to Google all these wrestling terms, understand what the inside of the business is. So for Pillman to do that in a world where people were not still not necessarily certain that wrestling was predetermined, or some people like to say fake, the state of pro wrestling back then was way different than it is now. And the fact that he was able to do that with consistency, and it was always a shock, was pretty damn cool. But going back to Brian Pillman Jr., hearing the story about his stepdad basically, you know, training a dog to basically bark at him if he tried to get out of his room while he was grounded, just a, I, I felt so sorry for the guy. And again, you know, maybe after COVID, like if I actually want to meet him. I'd, I'd give him a hug. Like, I'm, I'll be honest. I'd give the guy a hug because I think he, does, he he's earned a hug from a lot of people. And it's like, if you didn't tear up, and I, I kind of choked up a little bit watching that because it's like, it's so depressing to you see somebody be put in that position and just never necessarily able to get out. And then he's able to turn his life around and find, like, a passion. And that was pro wrestling. And I loved that ending. It works extremely well so congrats to dark side of the ring hell of a first episode i cannot wait for the supersize season hell i can't wait for dark side of football too Uh, maybe i'll get into that under the dome with cd but go check out dark side of football which will be like right after dark side of the ring the nick gage episode nick gage is going to be a freaking fantastic show from start to finish because there's so much you can tell about him. I know some people may not necessarily like him. I don't like him, but damn it. I'm going to be probably entertained by some of these stories that were told. Also getting to hear David Arquette talk about him is always going to be fun. I also want to talk about a little new Japan pro wrestling because there's a lot of stuff that happened in the last week evolving, involving the land of the rising sun and one of those, man, it just sucks to see this. And that involves New Japan heading into, like, as wrestling Don was about to wrap up, they basically had to completely scrap so much over the last several days. And it sucks. Because they had a COVID outbreak right before, like, they were hitting that end of the line, wrapping up Don Taku, and it, up, it like, changed damn near everything about their card. And we got, we're going to take this step by step because it is a lot to break down. So we start off with two. Wait, let me go ahead and go back. Okay. Now we go back. I think it was May 4th. Okay, May 4th, Dontaku, Day 2. They had to shuffle up the entire card because they had a rest, one wrestler that was scheduled to appear on Day two's card, presented with a fever on the morning of the event and they want to undergoing the antibody and PCR testing, and basically said this person's in isolation. Another wrestler that had been part of the event since May 1st in Beppu also presented a fever and it was undergoing evaluation. So in their but it's of caution, they had to shuffle up the card like crazy. So you had Kazucha Okada and Sho taking on Minoru Suzuki and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. That got swapped to... Master Watto and Tenzan taking on T- Taiji Ishimori and Yujiro Takahashi. Hopefully I'm going to try and pronounce these names 100% right because I, I, it's hard time. Then you also had Master Wato Taguchi, Tenzan, Toru, and Hiroshi Tanahashi, Dick Togo, Taiji Ishimori, Yu- Yujiro Takahashi, Evil, and JY, you had basically Bullet Club and Chaos. That match got bumped and changed to just... Toguchi, Toriano, and Tanahashi, Dick Togo, Evil, and Jay White. Still, kind of your same guys, but wasn't necessarily what you wanted to see. And then they also bumped out entirely the junior heavyweight title match, which should have been a great payoff. And El Desperado versus Yo got removed entirely from the card, and every wrestler and staff member involved in the event was in full health. Then it came out. The next day on Tuesday, that two wrestlers did test positive for COVID-19. So they apologized for the inconvenience and concern. And the requirement of masks during warm-ups and backstage, as well as the provision of packaged food to minimize outside interaction, are all in force at events. And then they said moving forward, we'll continue to work to further improve the COVID-19 countermeasures and everything possible to ensure staff, wrestler, and fan safety. That came out on May 5th. Then on May 7th, two days later, the Yokohama Stadium Tokyo Dome show has been canceled. It was supposed to happen May 15th and 29th. Both those shows, the Wrestle Grand Slam events, completely canceled. So, yeah, you're having to deal with that as well. And then we find out, turns out it's a complete outbreak. Because on May the 9th, you had seven total positive tests of COVID-19. That's insane. That's an incredibly high number. Now, again, I think from what I've been able to kind of surmise, there's been a bit of an outbreak just in general of COVID over in Japan. That's what I'm observing. And they're having to kind of move some things around and reschedule events. I mean, they, again, they had to cancel multiple cards. Like I believe they still they haven't done Russell Grand Slam. They have, they've bumped a lot of these cards, a lot of these shows. Because of that. Now they're having to kind of reschedule things. They canceled Wrestle Grand Slam. I mean, who's to say this doesn't affect what they're going to do with Best of the Super Juniors? Because they haven't announced that yet. They haven't announced when they're going to start that. And obviously you're getting close to Dominion. Dominion's supposed to be on June 6th. So can you get to that finish line? I think that's what they're going to have to do is try and move closer to that finish line. Because if they don't, it's going to suck for New Japan to miss out on a Big event like Dominion. I mean, this is pretty much the equivalent of their SummerSlam. If we're talking about comparing New Japan to WWE, but they did have some other interesting things happen at Wrestling Dontaku, which was a really like cool two-day event. But I want to talk about Wrestling Dontaku more night two than anything else because that's really where some of the big takeaways come from. Night one. Ended with a phenomenal main event with Jay White and Hiroshi Tanahashi. It gets gets a four and a half Lincoln Boudin rating for me. Really good stuff. Jay White defeated Tanahashi to win the Never way Championship. And also kind of called out Kenny, saying that Jay White was a real belt collector. After all, he has won. He's the first ever Grand Slam champion in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Winning the Never, winning the Intercontinental, US, and even the IWGP. Heavyweight Championship, the the old one, the old lineage, not the new one, the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship, which was defended in the main event of night number two. And this was a masterpiece that I came very close to pushing a button and pushing a button that broke the scale. And I said, I can't do it. It is very tough for me to give this one the full-blown five stars it's not because of will osprey or shingo tagaki i said i instituted this system about like a month ago i cannot with all due respect to this match and uncle dave i can't increase this star rating or boudin rating at least for like a couple years if not longer depending on how long i decide to do this gimmick and however much longer this podcast decides to last Will Ospreay, Shingo Tagaki is a five Lingabude match for me. Go out and go watch. It It is probably one of the best ones they've done. They've had several great matches. I was looking up on Cagematch.net because well, I've been, I'll say this. First off, you don't go check out Cagematch. You're doing yourself a disservice. And also it's such a great resource for the sport of pro wrestling. Because you can look at some of the history of some of these guys. For instance, I could pull up Will Ospreay right now and go to his matches. I'm actually doing this as we speak because I want to remember when what the other times were because they've had like, their careers have basically like followed each other for the last several years. And you got Shingo; he's wrestled against them several times, and basically the last time they faced was in the New Japan Cup. Before that. And these two have had, like, some amazing matches. I mean, they had a best of the Super Junior Final in 2019 that got a lot of people talking. But that was, like, a five-, six-star match, according to Uncle Dave. Then they had the final match, a really good match, in the the G1 Climax last year. And they did it again in 2021 in the New Japan Cup Final, putting together a 30-minute match that really got a lot of people talking. Now, obviously, it was more the post-match angle that got everybody really into it and really understanding what the brevity of all this is, but there's no doubt in my mind that this was the second best match they've ever had. I got in conversation with a good friend. He's been on the program before. Jeremy Donovan of the Keeping It a Strong Style podcast. We need to try to get him on to talk about what's going on in New Japan and the plans as we head into Dominion. Definitely going to get in touch with him down the road. But it was interesting to kind of think about the fact that these guys have faced off about four times in the last couple of years since 2019 and these three guys have had absolute bangers and in fact the only other time the only time that shingo's ever been able to beat him was the second go around the g1 in day five of g1's tournament in 2020 and now osprey does it again and does it on the on a big stage for the biggest title in the history of the sport or in the history of new japan for that big, big belt, or not-so-big belt now. But it's huge. It establishes things. Now, obviously, we're going to see Osprey Okada, and I'm almost certain, at least in my mind, i could be completely off base here. But I've got a feeling. Now, I brought up Jay White earlier. I'm sure he wants to have a few with Kenny Omega. I think the real money is, if you really want to shoot your shot and get an opportunity to have this super awesome main event at all out wrestle kingdom bound for glory, whatever you need to have Okada take the belt off of Osprey. I'm sure they're going to plan on doing that and have that be the main event of Dominion is it, we're going to do it probably at wrestle grand slam. I think that was the plan, but obviously that show got bumped. I am all the way here for that match to be a wrestle kingdom main event if you can have Omega hold the title for that long, which I don't think they're going to, I would love for that to happen. But, honestly, just give me this match. Just give me a match with the belt collector, Kenny Omega, taking on a new, a different version of the Rainmaker, Kazuchika Okada, and have him go 60-minute Broadway. That would probably be one of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. To have All the belts on the line, and it's a draw, so they all get to keep their belts. But it's a 60-minute match that is an absolute damn masterpiece. I want to say more than damn, but this is going to be a classic, and I cannot wait for it, to be honest with you. Now it's all about what they do with Kenny Omega after, I'd say, All Out, or Double double or Nothing, I think, is going to be when they do take the belt off of him. Because it feels like they want to build... Hangman Adam Page between now and Double or Nothing. Because they're going to kind of start, no excuse me, not Double or Nothing, listen to me, All Out. Because Double or Nothing is going to be more likely than Orange Cassie. My brain just completely lost control there. We only got a few more weeks till Double or Nothing. So I'm thinking All Out is when they're going to coronate Hangman Adam Page. Maybe I'm wrong. But I feel like that's where things are going to go. At least in the world of pro wrestling from that aspect. But speaking of AEW, we'll talk about that next. We'll wrap up the Cajun Strong Style podcast, talk about AEW blood and guts. And we're talking about literally just the match itself. I, I literally, so Wednesday night was my birthday. So I went, go out, go get something to eat. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go have dinner. Go eat go eat some Mexican food on Seco de Mayo. Makes sense. And then I'll go watch Dynamite. And, you know, I want to get getting home just in time for the finish. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to bother with a damn thing else. I'm just going to watch Blood and Guts, the match itself from start to finish, and I'll have my observations. That's all I'm going to care about in wrestling this week. Outside of New Japan, because wrestling Dontaku had me intrigued. And they did a great job. But in terms of an actual match, this is the only thing that really mattered to me. No offense to Monday Night Raw, which is a mess. NXT having some really cool stuff, including you know, Swerve Scott getting a new stable. I'm intrigued to see how that goes, and just like so much more. I mean, you had Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae win the NXT the NXT Women's Tag Team Championships, which is a dumb. It still annoys me, but I'll be damned if I'm not happy for those two, especially Candice LeRae. She absolutely freaking deserves it. She should have a women's champion a long time ago. But we got to see that. But Blood and Guts was the only thing that I really was like wholeheartedly interested in from start to finish. And this was something that I think it lived up to the expectation. The match itself from bell to bell was really good. Now, of course, we'll get to what happened after the bell rang, which is, I'm putting that in keywords there. After the bell rang has always been, I think, AEW's weak spot. Because bell to bell, they know how to work. In terms of post-match stuff, they fall short of the mark. Case in point, revolution, the whole exploding barbed wire. But again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's get to the bell to bell action. First off, Pinnacle walks out there dressed completely in white, which I love the fact they did that first of all. And then inner circle comes out. there all in these prison jumpsuits with the sleeves cut off, all represented in different counties, like, Stony Mountain Penitentiary for Jericho. I know that Harris County for Sammy Guevara. Pride and Powerful. Uh, excuse me, Santana and Ortiz. I'm not going to call them Proud and Powerful. They haven't even called them that forever. But Santana and Ortiz out there rocking the Rikers Island. Jake Hager's rocking uh, something in Oklahoma. But still, all that stuff was badass. And it made them look like, truly, the, the thugs. And we're going to go ahead and bring this like war to you. And it worked really well. They want to take a couple commercial breaks, which again, this is something I'm going to bring up just coming out of the gate with it. This should have been a pay-per-view match. I understand you advertised it a year ago on TV, but don't have a war games match with commercial breaks. It just slowed things down so much. And out the fact it took you an hour where you pre-taped the first hour, then the second hour you had an interview with Kenny Omega that went like 30 minutes too long, and then you had this match, and you took more commercial breaks. You could have wound up spending more time with some pre-tapes and then use up some of those commercials and be like, oh, hey, the final like 40 minutes of the show, all commercial-free. There's a, there's a better way to do it, at least in my mind. I could be completely off-base here, but that's how I feel. And the match starts off with Dax Harwood, the Arn Anderson of the group, taking on Sammy Guevara alone in the two rings. Guevara leaps over the ropes, takes down Dax real quickly. The Spanish guy looked awesome here. Opening moments, really cool and slick-looking leapfrog spot ending with a drop kick. Harwood responded right after with probably one of the best double-A spine busters I've seen in a hot minute because he laid that ish in so damn good. And also, the cage setup, this is, was something I observed when I saw the pictures in the first place. It was very much, you know, if you remember the dying days of WCW when they tried doing the Hell in a Cell ripoff, this was, that kind of caged me. The caged heat match, the way that the structure looked, it looked badass. And I had the fact that it was, like, absolutely massive. There was no worries about you hitting your head on the roof, or the, the cell roof. So they go at it. Guevara hits a springboard cutter on Dax. They get busted open after, and he he gets busted open, like, right after that. Sean Spears takes control, brings out a steel chair with his logo on it, and assaults Guevara. He blasts him with a steel chair, and it was, like, boom. Like, headshot, unprotected, or I think it might have been protected. I have to go watch the clip again. But Spears looked like he reached Nirvana after. It looked like he reached the point of, you know, the climax, if you will. Making that, which again, I would love to see that be used more as a gimmick for him. Cause it makes sense. He's the chairman, and I think you had that basically be like almost like Bubba Ray back when he was making his first run in the WWF. When he wound up putting everybody through the table and had this like like hypnotic trance. I like the way they did that. Then Ortiz even the odds with a chair of his own, then he comes out like a man on fire, attacking everybody. Guevara hit a Freaking amazing. Spanish fly on spears off the ropes. And that was probably my favorite spot of the entire match. So damn good. And again, Guevara has been crushing lately. And then Cash hit Ortiz with a gory special into the cage. I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Different kind of move. And then he gets stuck in between the cage. Ortiz gets stuck between the cage. How the hell does that happen? I was blown away by that. Santana comes out next. The inner circle takes over. Things are evened out now. And they go to picture-in-picture. Picture. Wardlow comes out during that break, and there's a standoff between him and inner circle. They all go after him, but they can't take him down. He just starts knocking down, them all down to give Pinnacle the edge once again. At one point, he just straight-up throws Gavar into the cage wall, just yeets him into there, and it was so damn cool. Hager, next one out. And here's what I've been waiting for. We get these two big, bad motor scooters, these hosses, And they're just trading blows. They're just beating the tar out of each other. And that's what I was waiting for. Just like two big dudes just beating the piss out of each other. This was the, like, dream match. I don't want to see this at double or nothing. That's a match I want to see. Hager versus Wardlow. Because I think those two big, bad mother, you know what? They would absolutely put together a phenomenal type of main event at least in my mind. But then MGFC's last one in there to enter the ring, he starts picking on the bones of the beaten low blows Hager, and they dominate here. Jericho's the last one to enter, and then we get a standoff. good old Mexican standoff. And then they both just start running to the middle of the two rings and start just wailing on each other. Jericho takes over, decks everyone with Floyd, his baseball bat, Chokes out Sean Spears in the truss, which was a great spot. Not a little too dangerous, but damn it, that was not a cool move and a good good thought on his part. And again, picture in picture, didn't need it. Not a whole lot. I like it was almost like rest holds at this point. They come back, and the ring is cut open by FTR, and Guevara hits coast to coast on Sean Spears. So much crap is going on. Jericho hits MJF with the turnbuckle clamp, bust him open. And I'm talking like, Gusher. He was like about like Crimson Mask, worse than Britt Baker bleeding. It was like, holy bleep, is this blood and guts? Was for real, and this brought it up a different notch for me. Inner Circle keep wailing on MGF. Wardlow tries to rally again, then everybody gets a piece of him, and they have a really rough chair shot again. Unprotected made me wince a little bit. But Tully Blanchard attacked Bryce Remsberg. And they get the key to unlock the door, and MGF gets out, climbs the cage. No, I guess there's no rule now about if you escape the cage, you are disqualified and you lose. Okay, whatever. I don't leave a the lock down. They never really established that rule either, at least to me, because I know they had that spot where a couple spots, actually, with AJ Styles doing some stuff off the top of the cage. But this was another one of those. You go to commercial break again, which, come on now, and Jericho, you can tell he was basically stalling. They go to break, and Jericho's climbing up the cage, and basically he just stands there for like a minute and a half. Like, couldn't you have done something else and focus on other things going on in the ring? Because there's four other guys, there's eight other guys in the ring you could focus on, but you got to focus on freaking Jericho. It was one thing that just frustrated me with this. But then we get to see these two go at it on top of the cage. And it's very. It looked very different. Looked much more sturdier than like the hell in the cells we see in WWE. Put together a lot of great work here. Jericho locked in the walls. MGF looked like he was going to tap, but once Y2J kind of got up enough because he stood up a little bit instead of like putting more pressure on the back. He moved up a little bit. MGF just popped them right in the balls, and then locked in the salty earth arm bar started stomping away at it, trying to break it, and Jericho never tapped out. He did not tap out, not one single bit. Again, they just kept on MGF and Jericho. It could go on to other things, but again, I get it. This is the climactic spot. MGF then hits Jericho with the dynamite diamond ring. Jericho immediately comes up bloody. Not necessarily as bloody as MGF was at this point because he was pretty much like bleeding like a stuffed pig. So good. And then he says, you know what? He looks over the edge. He says, I'm throwing Jericho off the cage. They call it concrete, which really it wasn't. But here's the thing. He looked on the other side and then just went to the other side where the crash pad was. And MGF says, he's going to go ahead and do it. And he's like, I'm going to throw him off unless you surrender. If you say you quit, then I won't throw him. And Guevara, Says the magic word, but of course, you never trust MGF, this piece of human garbage. And he throws Jericho off. And he lands into a huge crash pad. Now, I mentioned, I wasn't a fan of the exploding barbed wire deathmatch. Because the finish, the ending of the show with the tiny sparkler fireworks. But here's the thing. I was okay with it. They could have shot it a little bit better. Because they had one angle where it was almost like a top-down perspective where you push them down and then boom. And also Jericho could not have freaking smiled. Jericho he just got thrown off. You could have just like just st- stood there and been like asleep. You could have looked like you were just dead. Instead of just dead tired. It was a bad spot. It was a bad bump. Now I get it. Everybody was expecting this to be like him going through it, I think, honestly, they've done several crash pad spots. But this one was one where I felt like they put a little bit too much padding on it. Because go back and watch a lot of stuff that they've done in AEW with, like, certain spots, certain big spots, like Kenny Omega and Sammy Guevara, the one-winged angel from Stadium Stampede. That was how you do a crash pad spot. You do it further away, and also make sure it... It has more of a, a, a give, less give, because I could tell the thing had, probably had a lot of give, and the second he landed, it was just nothing. You could have had him land, and it be a and he goes if he sinks further down, then that makes the visual of him getting injured and written off TV for several weeks look a lot better. It was just that one error, and I know I know this is probably just a matter of safety. I'm not saying they should have just had him go through. A table with no protection. Honestly, they needed to have protection. It's a lot like when Shane McMahon did the elbow drop off the Hell in a Cell into the crash pad. Makes sense in terms of protecting the guys inside the ring from any unknown stuff. Because if you try to drop, drop, jumping off or being pushed off a twenty-foot structure, you're going to wind up like feeling it in the morning or for a few days, in fact. So, unlike a lot of people, I'm not going to poo poo it because I get it. But at least try and produce it so it looks better on TV. And you don't have people just sitting there wondering what the bleep's going on. Because that's what I felt the entire time I watched AEW Dynamite, the blood and guts match that everybody was looking forward to. And it was such a good, like, War Games esque match. And it lived up to the name, it had tons of blood. Most of it was just Dax and freaking Sam and MGF. But still, they all came out worse for wear. And that's what you want in this kind of match versus, let's say, hell in a cell now. Hell in a cell is not hell in a cell that we remember. And it sucks. It stinks to know that's where we're at. But I sit here today, and I don't hate this. I didn't hate it. I thought, you know, pro wrestling needed something like this. And I saw people say, you know, WWE is saying, you know, they set wrestling 30 years back doing this match. And I'm like, honestly, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. If you set wrestling back 30 years with something like this, because, because of the fact that you have not done anything in the sport of professional wrestling in the last, 10 years it was like this it was so unique it wasn't you know overly polished it didn't look hokey there was one spot that looked kind of hokey and that was what happened after the match but again i can overlook that i didn't see like but five minutes of raw last night when i watched it because i was probably gonna talk about it but then i see alexa bliss and the whole alexis playground thing i'm like i don't care about this anymore A couple weeks ago, you have Elias and Jackson Riker being geeks and they're throwing tomatoes and stuff. I don't care about that. I want to see wrestlers, wait for it, wrestle. And if this is set in wrestling 30 years back, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. Because pro wrestling as we know it maybe needs to have that kind of reset button put on it. Now, obviously, you can't bring back kayfabe. That horse is dead and buried. But I think you could take notes from what AEW did and what AEW done and what I say to a certain extent NXT pre-USA Network had done. Is what NXT used to do was tell long-term stories. And I wish they had more time to tell these long-term stories in WWE. I would love to see more of this stuff. But the more I look at how pro wrestling is in 2021, it's hard to go back to that point. I'm not saying bring back the attitude here because that's a dumb idea because let's be honest, there's a lot of bad stuff from that era. Everybody wants to love what's going on. Everybody wants to love what's going on with, you know, the WWE and what's going on with AEW, but at the end of the day, you know the Attitude Era just was Stone Cold, The Rock, Triple H, Jericho later on, and the company just just wasn't that great. Outside of that, you had great, you had really good storylines for a lot of the mid quarters, but there was some stuff like May Young's hand son that wasn't that wasn't fun. Wasn't that was it's a moment that everybody remembers. But it's just not that it's not that great. It's not wrestling to me. At least that's what I'm saying. Do people hate, you know, the Michael Nacozalo stuff? Yes, of course. And I'm not a fan of it either. But I am a fan of wrestling. And damn it, this business is weird. And it's gonna get weird. I just feel like there's gotta be like a point where you just sit there and you're like, Is this what I still want to watch? Is this still what I want to watch on a regular basis? And I sit there, and I'm like, you know, do I want to watch every single show every day of the week? It's tough. It's tough. That said, I still have a passion and a love for wrestling that is damn near unmatched, at least in my book. Because I've always loved it. I've always respected it. and Damn it. If I didn't love what I saw with blood and guts, it was a moment. Yeah, people probably look back at it in hell. If A.W. goes away and a- WWE buys it out. It'll be played as a moment that ruined the WWE, ruined AEW forever. Because the Vince McMahon and the McMahon family loves to have these revisionist history moments. But honestly, that wouldn't be what killed it. It would be something else entirely. There's so much more to the actual story. And hopefully people can kind of realize that pro wrestling's is awesome. Basically is what I'm saying is just sometimes you got to take the good with the bad. You got to take these moments and be like, okay, you could have changed at least one or two of these things. At least that's my opinion, but I'm about to get out of here. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us and more importantly, if you have Apple podcasts, or even if you don't, if you don't subscribe to us through Apple podcasts, still leave us a five star rating. Every single time you do, we will. And I guarantee you, we will, I will, you're going to see it. We're going to shout you out and we're going to shout you out. And I can't wait to talk about it and so much more. We'll get to in next week's podcast. Be a little more lighthearted because I was like, I had a lot of things to get off my chest, but as always appreciate y'all, make sure you go check out the pod, however you do so. And we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the sport professional wrestling until next time